This is a post-Christian podcast. Clinical director of Reclamation Collective. Hello. Um, and you're also a therapist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am a licensed therapist, uh-huh. but I also acknowledge I'm not currently practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a different full time role at a middle school, but mm-hmm. I would like to transition into therapy. Cool. Uh, so I guess just kind of starting out pretty basic. What can you? Tell us all about uh, Reclamation Collective. Yeah, well, Reclamation Collective is uh, my my brandest newest little baby. Um, about eight months ago, two of the co-creators and I got together. We had just become friends, actually, in the fall. And through a meditation night that we were all three attending, um, and I had definitely expressed how that kind of a ritual in my life was very reminiscent of church and Mm. the many traditions that came with growing up in the pretty fundamentalist Christian culture I came from. Um, And we just were talking that we wanted to plan some sort of retreat for other people like us Mm -hmm. because all three of us are connected to so many people um, through like Bible college or Christian college or and also our fundamentalist upbringings. And so... All three of us wanted to create a retreat, and so we did that in the fall. I'm I'm sorry, in February, so in the winter, and it went so well. It was so successful, and people just, I think many people experienced a great deal of catharsis and having conversations that they had never maybe held space for. Mm. Um, So there was definitely some heavy elements of that, but I think that's what people were seeking if they came to a weekend long retreat just focused on this element that is usually pretty awkward to bring up in conversation Uh Um, so we talked about like deconstructing the patriarchy and sexual repression and um, kind of healing the inner child as Dr. Marlene Wynell talks a lot about in Leaving the Fold and her work with um, Journey Free and so it was really cool just to be able to introduce to a lot of people that this is a conversation that's been ongoing literally for a couple decades, mm-hmm. but it's still, there's not a lot of like language around it. Yeah. Um, and yet it's so crazy that when you meet someone who identifies with religious trauma, it's instant like connection and instant like just storytelling with so much overlap and so it's easy to build a language around religious trauma Mm. i just don't think a lot of people have spaces where they get to try yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and i've been to a couple of the meetings um and i've I've really uh enjoyed it and it is it is nice to have a space that is created um with the the pretext of everyone coming in knowing that that's what what's going to be talked about because i in my experience i feel like a lot of times um sometimes i don't have a great filter myself and mm-hmm. so like sometimes I, I can step on people's toes a little bit you know or, or be insensitive and things like that or like start conversations um maybe with, without without reading the room fully correctly and, and it was just trauma is obviously something what like, you yeah no. <laughs> oh. how, how odd um at least i know it <laughs> yeah it's great self-awareness thank so. you it goes a long way yes <laughs> um but yeah so obviously religious Trauma and things surrounding uh, deconstruction and, and, and yeah. deconversion and things like that are very interesting to me and things that I like to talk about a lot, mm-hmm. which is why we're doing this right now. But but so it's nice to, to enter a space where, where it's like, yeah, this is what we're going to talk about um, because yeah, it can be it can be it can be tricky to bring up and then to also know um, what yeah kind of piece like what vocabulary you can use and mm-hmm. and I, I think it's it's good to be in a space where you know that people can be triggered by certain vocabulary also. Right. Yeah. I mean all of our events just our existence is a trigger warning Mm -hmm. and so i think people coming to that space 
I used to be really nervous about having people who perhaps still identify within a faith or mm-hmm. are trying to reclaim or sure. reconstruct a faith identity. Mm-hmm. I was really anxious that there was going to be like this tension or this difficulty between that demographic and people who are experiencing a wave of resentment or anger or grief and how like, yes, there still can be things that can be triggering and hard for people to hear. But I think that that's also like the space that we're creating is we're holding space for people to process their religious trauma in a space where we celebrate and honor diversity of thought. And Mm. I do think that's one thing I really want to hold to because I'm so pleased with how many resources there are for people who are like ex-evangelicals, who've left the fold, right? Mm -hmm. Who've left a religious culture or a culture of, you know, fundamentalism Mm -hmm. and then to so I think there's a lot of resources for people like that which I identify with in that demographic so I'm so thankful but I also know that five six seven years ago it would have been really helpful for me to have had access to a support group or just these meetup events or just to like meet people and start using the phrase religious trauma because I was already becoming more conscious of my religious trauma and how very heavy... I was in, like, the climax of my deconstruction, basically, Uh but I still didn't have the awareness of that language. Like, that's what I was going through. Right. And I think it would have been really healthy for me, even while still working to reclaim and reconstruct a faith identity, which Uh I was not able to do successfully. I I just wish I had more of a community around me to help remind me of where my value is also rooted. Yeah. Because I think that was a hard piece and that's what I hear a lot from people coming to our my support, the support group and the retreats is that growing up indoctrinated that 100% of your value and identity is rooted in this one element of your belief, mm-hmm. your this one faith system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it has nothing to do with your pleasure your inner peace, your relational harmony, it just has to do with like what serves or doesn't serve mm-hmm. this belief system, this church institution, right. or this like leadership style. Mm-hmm. And so um, I do want to make sure that the Reclamation Collective is also holding space for people who do identify with a faith system or sure. would like to. Yeah, I think that one thing that often gets assumed when people, at least from my background, the Plymouth Brethren, um, when people from the Plymouth Brethren often hear um, that I'm pursuing, you know, specializing my practice towards treating religious trauma, I think people make some assumptions that, like, I'm out to take people out of church, out to, like, get people Mm, to deconvert or to, like, Uh you know, become an atheist. I don't even identify as an atheist. Also, like, I have no... There's no benefit in people like leaving a part of their faith, a part of their identity mm. that is important to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, I don't think this is actually ironic, but maybe some people would see this as ironic. But my training in like social work and therapy and, you know, clinically supporting and treating mental health, I think has always had it's always capitalized on the fact like anything that someone brings to a session or brings to a space as a part of their identity that they have pride in like you capitalize on that that's the strength based approach is Mm -hmm. if you identify this as a strength it literally is doesn't mean you can't still deconstruct some like unhealthy you know automatic negative thoughts or thinking patterns um, which many of us were indoctrinated to believe about our value you know like I said but I I do really try to continue to consult with faith leaders, even though I'm not a person of faith. And um, I have a number of people in my personal life who, and also my professional life. I have a lot of colleagues who are therapists who do identify with a faith, who I'm having amazing conversations with mm, that's great, yeah. about religious trauma and what it looks like, feels like, sounds like, and how you can still treat it, mm. whether or not you identify with it, okay. which is most therapy, right? Uh-huh. Most yeah, therapy, sure. yeah. like you don't necessarily know if your therapist has had the same experience as right, you. Yeah. Um, so that's another element too, um, just to go on a 
another tangent, one of my first, you know, tasks I'm hoping to achieve in this next, you know, six month cycle is um, I want to start creating trainings and CEUs for clinicians to be able to specialize or practice in religious trauma. Because one of our long-term goals is to have a nationwide list of clinicians. Uh-huh. And that includes therapists, that includes body workers, that includes sex educators, that includes anyone who who has, you know, mm. any experience or specialization in treating and addressing and naming religious trauma. Uh-huh. And so one thing I'm finding though is when I talk with when I talk with therapists, yeah. No one feels competent or confident to say I specialize in religious trauma uh-huh. because there's no certification, there's no training, right. there's no, you know, unless you've experienced it yourself uh-huh. and ex- probably had supportive therapy during your deconstruction process, uh-huh. no one has a model for that. Right. I do have a model because uh-huh. I have been in therapy for a good chunk of my deconstruction and that's been incredibly helpful. Yeah. Um, but even my therapist, when I asked her if she'd be open to being on this list, um, she just said she would need to do some more like reading and research, which uh-huh. I really appreciate that response. Yeah. You know, I don't appreciate when therapists are like put me on the list because uh-huh. they're just looking to like add more clientele. Sure. And I've heard enough horror stories from folks that I'm connected to through the collective who have had not cool experiences in therapy because their therapist um, really, for example, I hear a lot of stories about like when someone describes their religious trauma or family rejection or just that disconnect that then that can be perceived as okay you're wanting to like focus on the relationship with your mom and it's like well actually yeah maybe i need to just have better boundaries Mm -hmm. um which is going to hurt people's feelings yeah sure um and i think that there's certainly ways to help build that perceptive judgment for clinicians but I think that it's just sharing stories and yeah. sharing my personal experience and the experiences of folks that I'm meeting my support group that I think could totally help clinicians, even mm-hmm. those who don't identify themselves personally uh-huh. with religious trauma yeah. and how to better hear and see and know mm-hmm. religious trauma when right. it's expressing itself in session. Right. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because I, I was going to ask you about if, uh, if you felt like people who had experienced it firsthand were better suited to it uh, but just real quick can you define mm-hmm. religious trauma i should have asked you this oh, from yeah. the get-go just just to give a, a clear uh, definition yeah i mean religious trauma is obviously a very vague term it can mean anything uh-huh. um and within well it can mean any like trauma that's rooted in a faith system whether that's deconstructing from indoctrination yeah. or you know, being indoctrinated with truly like damaging messaging around self value, value, self worth, self love, self care. Um, also, like relational patterns and kind of what you're told you have to do in romantic relationship, in friendship, and um, and then of course, I think that in a lot of religious cultures, partially because there is a lot of roots in patriarchy. You could definitely argue for a lot of demographics, white supremacy, but I think that there's a lot of power dynamics that are created in a system that um, also has a lot of roots in capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I just think that there's so many power dynamics, so there's so many folks who are extremely vulnerable to being abused or manipulated into um but by someone who has been given power within their religious community, mm. whether that's a church leader, whether that's just a person with a penis, because in mm. at least the culture I grew up in, men have power. Yeah. So whether or not they're conscious of it doesn't mean they're not still playing into their power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, yeah, whether yeah. that's, you know, of course you hear stories about people being like sexually, um, abused and manipulated and um, violated in faith communities and I think that sometimes it's well even that can be sneaky but I think it can be sneakier than that too with like emotional and spiritual abuse you know clergy abuse and yeah, just those sure. boundaries and I think it's actually been really fascinating as I pursued my clinical you know career is 
realizing so much overlap between like that clinical role and why it's so important that there's boundaries in those relationships between the therapist and you know Mm. client yeah and it's because there is a power differential that I'm stepping into Mm. when people are you know coming to me and ideally you know trusting me that I have their safety I have their well-being in mind um and I do think that there is the potential to do some serious damage if you're not taking that role seriously and if you're not respecting the boundaries that, like, that person is, you know, in theory paying for, yeah, right? Sure, and sure. so I think that it's also helped me kind of deconstruct the power dynamics within the church and, like, pastors and clergy members and board yeah. members and mm-hmm. elders, you know, however your church leadership structure was set up is, like, I, I feel like people often do look to church leaders. I know right. I look to youth group leaders mm-hmm. and Bible camp counselors, honestly, the way I now look to my therapist. Right. And so I yeah. see a lot of overlap in like, okay, this is a serious power dynamic that I need to be conscious of in order to not abuse it. Yeah, sure. I also think having a vagina helps make that a little bit more accessible. Uh-huh. I think that it's probably even harder to bring that to the consciousness of a lot of white men who uh-huh. are in leadership because they just don't know any other yeah. way. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you kind of mentioned, uh, like, get. I, th- I think that you alluded to um, getting something out of the ritual of meditation mm-hmm. when we first started mm-hmm. uh, talking. And I'm um, curious if you could talk about other any other rituals that you maybe still see value in or that you've reconstructed or that you've reclaimed? Reclaimed. (laughs) Yeah. That's like our question we ask at most of our events and meetups is like, what are you working to reclaim? Um, Or claim for the first time. Uh We've had people point that out too, that Uh some things we never got to complain, Uh got to claim. Right. Um, I would say I am definitely trying to reclaim beloved community and just traditions. I think I'm a very sentimental person and so I do love like the ritual of traditions and having, you know, intimate, intentional conversations with people. And I truly do miss that about, you know, growing up, I was in so many youth groups and Bible studies and I was volunteering at, you know, kids clubs, Awanas. Um, And I was like spending my whole summers as many weeks as I could at Bible camp, you know, serving the Lord as a counselor, as a dishwasher, as, you know, just a helper because I just wanted to be there. Yeah. Um, And so where was I going with this? What was the question? Oh, reclaim. reclaim, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think that you technically wrote the question, Kayla. (laughs) I think I did. Um, So I think that I am reclaiming, you know, beloved community, trying to have spaces where I still am having intentional conversations. And I think that's part of the Reclamation Collective for me is Uh kind of creating the space that I wish I had and that I want to have now. Yeah, Um, totally. It's just, uh, I I also want to be careful when I say the word community because I also don't want people to think that this is something that you join or Mm, that you commit to, you know, but just creating networks, I should say. So we're just like, Meeting people who yeah. can have a conversation about purity culture within 30 seconds of meeting them, mm-hmm. that's cool. Yeah, that is cool. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so, beloved community, but then also, um, and along with beloved community comes chosen family for a lot of people. Mm. Um, a lot of folks who've been, who've experienced family rejection either due to their deconstruction or because of another aspect of their identity. Often we have so many queer folks who've sought us out and, um, and I mean that obviously makes so much sense that yeah. whether you identify with the faith or not, if you do have a LGBTQIA plus identity, like you probably were very specifically targeted. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um and then like I said, tradition. So the meditation nights, I think that um we haven't done those in a couple of weeks here, but I I do think that was a really cool, like it was a weekly practice with people that I loved, that I care about, that I relate to, that I connect to, that I felt supported by. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think I've had that kind of a weekly ritual since, you know, Bible studies mm. or prayer groups yeah. or, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of those elements of the faith I grew up in. Mm. And also I've been reclaiming tarot actually. Yeah. Um, partially because for me, 
I think it's helping me reclaim my intuition. Mm. And so many folks, and certainly I myself, like identify with being told in my childhood and young adulthood and pretty much the entirety of my time in very connected to a church mm. system that, um, you know, I'm, an, I'm inherently evil. You can't trust mm. your heart. You can't trust yourself. Mm. And also that means like you can't trust your pleasure. Like if something feels mm. good, unless it very explicitly and specifically brings glory to God, yeah. like I don't, or the church, it's just not valued. Mm. And so I think that, <laughs> I guess I'm going on a couple tangents here. No, go for it. But I do think that part of what tarot has been really cool for me is bringing me back to that mindful space. Mm. It's intentional. It's, you know, just intuition and feeling my energy, tapping into my, my energy, my power, being reflective, mm. just for the sake of, like, getting to know myself better. Mm. Yeah. And being able to check in with, you know, my coping skills. For me, I think I have a very therapeutic approach to, to tarot also. So when I read other folks' tarot, I just do a three-card chronological read. You know, the energy you're coming from, the energy you're sitting mm-hmm. in, the energy you're moving towards. And it just brings up really cool conversations. Yeah. About, like, okay, how do you relate to this? Mm-hmm. And how have you or do you want to cope with that moving right. forward? Yeah. And so it's, um, and that's a way for me to also honor, like, I am intuitive, I am wise, and I have always felt that, but growing up, um, I was told that was, you know, the Holy Spirit. I couldn't get credit for any of my, Mm. you know, intuition, my visions, my, you know, perceptions of people. Which really has just played into me wanting to be a therapist and a social worker and just yeah, that's interesting. doing that kind of relational work because I do think I I read a lot of energy and I feel a lot of energy mm-hmm. and I've always said I experience love sensationally. Mm-hmm. I can feel it physically in my body, in my fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always felt that since I was a little girl. Uh-huh. But for me, growing up in that context, it was always, well, that's the Holy Spirit, or that's God, or that's the love of Christ. And it was never like, Kayla, you love sensationally, and that's awesome. Uh And um, giving, and also just like honoring that pleasure. Like, I'm so pleased with all this inner peace and relational harmony that I've been able to tap into. And while I was able to tap into a lot of those sensations within the church actually growing up, it was never motivating to do the work because I wasn't going to get any credit for it anyway. Yeah, that's interesting too. Yeah. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think that that, that is causing that uh, that physical sensation of love and things like that? Like do you do you mm. see um, do you, do you I guess believe have you reclaimed any belief in in any metaphysical uh, energies or mm. like maybe um, mystical mm-hmm. um Entities or, or, or exchange like uh, you know forces that, that exchange and, and operate and entangle with each other and things like that. That's a great question, and that probably like evolves on a weekly, monthly, sure. yearly basis. I don't really know that I have any like. I certainly don't identify with any religious or faith kind of construct yeah. institution. Um, I I still can kind of get behind like God is love mm-hmm. but to me that all seems like love is God sure. you know uh-huh. and um, but obviously that would be very hard for folks from the brethren to hear like love is God yeah right but it's constantly heard and on every fucking t-shirt you know, <laughs> God is love uh-huh. and it's like yeah but also I think that like I do feel this incredible spiritual connection to humans across the globe. And, you know, I think that I feel energy transferring between me and other people in most of my interactions. Not all of them, but I think I just, I think I'm just in tune with that part of, you know, the air realm of communication and boundaries and intellect. Uh It's like, I think I am pretty in tune with like, there's stuff that is 
transferring between you and I in this uh-huh. conversation, sitting here, holding space together. And um, so I do, I definitely would say I'm a spiritual person. I know that's the most millennial answer ever. <laughs> You're real shocked. But, um, yeah, so I don't really have a great answer for that. And I also think that I've just accepted that, like, I don't really care yeah. to reconstruct a faith identity. Uh-huh. I'm cool with living in the gray. Yeah. Um, it served me pretty well. Yeah. And I don't feel this, like, mystery or this longing or, like, this, you know, I don't feel a sense of being lost. Yeah. Even though I'm like, I don't have a good answer for that, but my answer is good enough because I also don't care mm-hmm. to do the work to, to find a new answer right sure, now. Sure, sure. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit more about your specific uh faith background and and anything that you're comfortable uh talking about uh, your your own specific religious trauma totally um so i grew up in the plymouth brethren i grew up in the suburbs of chicago and um the plymouth brethren i would say theologically is pretty similar to like a evangelical kind of theology Uh um i went to a couple of evangelical youth groups that had you know cuter peers who I wasn't related to also a clue that they never mind Anyhow, um, uh, yeah and I, I feel like I didn't notice a lot of differences between the theology that I was being taught and the evangelical connections I had uh-huh. and even when I went to a Baptist Bible school college for um, well a Baptist Christian college wasn't a Bible school per se but Bethel University even there too I was like okay theologically I definitely connect a lot with the evangelical Mm -hmm. uh, folks and even a lot of the Baptist folks I think there's a lot of overlap in that but I do think that the way that the brethren they do have some traditions that I think are unique for one historically most brethren churches did not have a pastor Um, they would have like a board of elders really Mm -hmm. and I think the board of elders was probably elected by the church so I do appreciate there's elements of that that I can actually appreciate okay. like that's kind of cool the that they're trying the democracy of it at least in theory and also yeah, sure. the um Isn't also it always just in theory? right and also like the power sharing that it's not like one person that's sure. being looked to for yeah. all of the uh-huh. decisions also in theory yeah. right sure um so also the way that at least the brethren churches I grew up in they would do like a worship service and like a family service, I think they called it. Mm. And the worship service was like, um, usually like hymns and any person with a penis could suggest a hymn or could literally get up and share anything that they felt the Lord put on their heart. Mm. Which also, there's elements of that that I can appreciate, Mm -hmm. but I also don't understand why like, it was so such an emphasis on like men. Yeah. Obviously, like women were it's not. It's literally called to the speak. brethren. It's literally called the brethren. So that <laughs> should give you some clues, right? right. <clears throat> but I think that women also. Um, what was I gonna say? Women are. Well, I know that women weren't allowed to speak or like share, you know, any type of message. And they weren't even allowed to call out, like, a hymn number. Really? I remember as a little girl, like, actually, my my best friend from the Brethren, Katie and I, we had so much fun with this. We would always, like, have our dads put out, like, a song number, and our dads would be like, oh, that's so sweet. My little girl is just, like, you Uh know, loving the Lord and wants to worship in this way. And Uh it was always, like, in the hymnals for whatever reason, which actually you could probably get into some theories on this. There was a lot of like patriotic songs, right? Like America oh, sure. the Beautiful, yeah. the Star Spangled Banner, uh-huh. <laughs> and there was also Oh Canada. So we oh, would really? always try to get our dads to call out those numbers, <laughs> In the and then everyone would get to them and be like, "What?" Yeah, like, and would kind of like judge our dads, and we thought it was hilarious. That's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of funny elements in that. That's yeah, really, that's really hilarious. Yes. Um, so I, I mean, I know that a lot of like that sexism was not even necessarily intentionally communicated Mm -hmm. to me Mm -hmm. because I've had such great conversations with my mom in the last decade of my deconstruction in which I know my mom is like a pretty badass feminist Mm -hmm. but she is really not cool with that word 
yeah. she has felt very personally attacked by like the feminist movement. Mm. And I think that was initially because of her choices to be a stay-at-home mother and, oh, um, you know, follow a lot of brethren traditions, uh-huh. which I think was her following her pleasure. I think that I've had to do a lot of kind of defending, you know, feminism, womanism, just gender equality in uh-huh. general to her because like mom this is all about me honoring you getting what you want uh-huh. and no I don't relate to what you want I don't want right. that right. but you don't want what I have either but we sure. can both be like happy for each other Yeah. that like this life is what you selected and consented to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and created for sure. yourself yeah yeah. So I think a lot of my pressing with my mom too has been like, I know your intention wasn't to send me this message. Here's how I've had to deconstruct from yeah. the belief that my body doesn't belong to me, from the belief that, you know, all of my value is only rooted in in another entity with he him pronouns. Right. <laughs> um so again, a tangent, I don't remember the question we started. With. <laughs> <laughs> I was just asking uh, about your mm. personal religious trauma. Thank you. Yeah. I would say most of my religious trauma is rooted in what I, at least in seasons of my life, perceived as like the loss of a beloved community, where I truly invested like so much of me, of my life's energy, childhood, young adulthood, to the church, to Bible camp, to Bible studies, uh-huh. to my own personal pursuit of the faith, going to Christian school college intentionally taking more bible courses than i needed to because i wanted i was actively like wanting to be more convinced Uh (laughs) actually Mm -hmm. um and i also wanted i wanted to find ways to reconcile some of my beliefs when i started to question and deconstruct Mm. with the faith because i didn't want to leave that culture yeah you know like that's Mm -hmm. I didn't want to leave that culture. I didn't want to deal with the family rejection. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, I haven't had to deal with a ton of family rejection. But That's just nice. like, I've also had to break down the difference between unconditional love and unconditional affection. Hmm. Where, like, I do believe that my parents unconditionally love me. I don't think there's anything I could do to make them not hmm. love me or care about me. I do think there's many things I have done and can do and probably will do that will inspire at least the the inclination to withhold affection from me. Okay. Um, That makes sense. Yeah. I love you but I don't like you sort of thing. Is that what Yeah. I love you but I I I think that uh, there's also like a respect thing, right? uh, Like I think I've had a lot of times where I didn't feel respected because yeah mm-hmm. but again that's a perception I don't necessarily know how they feel sensationally in their body mm. towards me mm-hmm. right I just know that I don't like the way that they're speaking to me or mm-hmm. treating me or not inviting me to things that I used to get invited to you know and that's mm-hmm. not so much on my family actually I, I really do want to give my mom especially a lot of kudos in okay. this conversation because she has shown up to a lot of the conversations Granted, oh. I had to initiate a lot of them, and I had to really advocate for, like, Mom, if we're going to have a relationship, you are going to need to learn some coping skills with parenting across diversity, <laughs> across diversity of thought, at least. Um, and and I, yeah. So I also think we can go into, like, purity culture. Of course, that fucked me up because it fucked everyone up. <laughs> you know, just the the shame of... And the fear of, like, following your pleasure and exploring your pleasure and exploring also, like, what feels connected and intimate in a relationship. And I think for sure I grew up in, uh, at least at the Bible camp I was a part of, there was this huge emphasis on modesty. Um, Yeah. And on, you know the dress code and I was asked to change clothes multiple times Mm. and I know a lot of folks also were asked women I should say I know a lot of women who were asked to change their clothes or put on more clothes or different clothes um, because it was this concept of you know if anyone finds you attractive Mm. then that equals lust 
and that equals like you're causing your right. better. Do they in use Christ the phrase yeah, uh, causing someone to stumble? Do they yes. use that one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and I I think that that definitely taught me that my obviously that still is rooted in like my body doesn't belong to me. Mm-hmm. You know, my and what I wear and how people perceive me mm-hmm. is what um, speaks to my morality, my mm. sexual ethic, yeah. my, you know. You know, that'd be a good, a good pickup line. Girl, you are <laughs> causing me to stumble right now. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Good job. Yeah, try that one. <laughs> so what? Uh, what started your questioning and, and deconstruction, and, and when did that start? Mm. Let's see. Because you went to Bible college, you said, or mm-hmm. to uh, a Christian college, to yep. Bethel. Yep, went to I've Bethel. Had, I've had a handful of Bethel Bethel grads, uh, grads here. here. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I would actually say, I think my. I started questioning a lot of things in high school. I've always been a pretty critical thinker, and I remember back in high school, like, at Bible camp and youth group, they'd always, like, ask you, like, what do you want to learn about? What do you want us to have more, like, workshops on and Bible studies on? And I remember multiple times requesting more conversations on homosexuality Mm -hmm. and on evangelizing. And in retrospect, I, like, I'm so endeared to, like, high school Kayla because I know I just wasn't convinced. Mm. It was always like, I want to be able to know how to explain to someone why being gay is wrong. Right. I want to be able to know how to explain to someone why they should convert to Christianity. Uh. And it was because I like didn't know how to have those conversations because I just didn't believe it. Yeah. I just never understood why mm. being gay was a problem. Right. It's not intuitive, you know? Yeah. So it's, yeah, you have to be convinced. Exactly. Apologetics. <laughs> Um, and I am intuitive. I'm super intuitive and always was. And I think I always just was like, something doesn't feel mm. uh, right here. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and in retrospect, that's even more endearing for me now because I have done some exploration and I do identify as pan and queer. And I think that it makes sense also that I was always taught that being gay was a choice, right? Yeah, sure. And I'm still deconstructing that because for me, I kind of always felt like it was. Yeah. Because I probably would have had very fulfilling connections, flirtatious interactions with women. I did Mm -hmm. have those, but didn't ever, you know, honor those or recognize those as like a romantic possibility Mm -hmm. or, you know, a sexual possibility. Um, and I also always did find a lot of fulfillment and connection in with men. Yeah. And so I was just like, you're either gay or straight. Mm. And I was like, well, then I must be straight because I like men. But right. then it was uh-huh. in oh, college. I, uh-huh. I was a freshman in college in the social work department at Bethel, um, which I will give a shout out to because they, I really do feel like the professors that were there when I was at Bethel were so like supportive in my deconstruction and I was pretty open with them Mm -hmm. a lot of the time about it but Mm -hmm. I remember freshman year I took a course and um, one of my professors introduced this concept of sexuality as a spectrum Hmm. and it was like instant I was like yeah Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, this makes sense and I was like I'm so convinced just seeing it I was like okay yep I'm not totally straight like, mm. but I'm also able to function pretty successfully in a heteronormative society right, yeah. and realm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so anyhow, so I think also having a lot of queer friends, having um, one queer family member, I, I think that honestly that was one of the first things that really like okay. I couldn't shed that question uh-huh. about like why is this a problem? Right, why is sure. this wrong? And yeah. I did see it as hate and it really made me uncomfortable and like anxious actually yeah to hear people talk about um just be to be homophobic yeah so i think it started there but then it was also um in college i studied abroad in guatemala when i was 19 so i was a sophomore and i think that was just the perfect amount of like distance from all of the societies the cultures that i had surrounded with whether that's you know the Bethel bubble or also like my brethren culture upbringing Mm -hmm. and it was also like immersed in a new 
in some new cultures. We were still there, of course, like with a faith-based program, doing kind of collaborating with a short-term missions trip organization. Um, so that I definitely started to deconstruct colonization and deconstruct kind of not deconstruct, but just name it, see it. I couldn't unsee it, yeah. right? Like, okay, a lot of my approach to missions and evangelism in the past was very, like, colonizing, white savory, mm. pretty yucky. Mm-hmm. Um, so that also helped me realize where my, the faith that I had been indoctrinated into was not culturally universal, was not universally accessible, and, um, I also started to see some of where a lot of, like, capitalism and capitalists kind of, my perception is propaganda, yeah. lies in a lot of theology and a lot of church mm. traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, again, I was still able to very much compartmentalize, like, that's not God. God is good. God mm-hmm. is just. And I think that's what got me through a lot of those years of, like, still wanting to identify with the faith. Is I'm like, I know that God is good and just. And I just kept on being like, if if something I'm being told mm-hmm. or introduced to makes God out to be sneaky or an asshole or, like, uh-huh. you know, culturally not universally accessible, uh-huh. then that's a problem in the theology, sure. not with God. Right, right, right. Um I mean, it's been a relief to not have to do that work anymore. And right. that constant intellectual, like, yeah. yeah. But I also, I also think that I know a lot of folks who've been able to reconcile those those sure. realms. And um, sometimes I'm envious of that, yeah. but also I know that like this is so clearly my path to inner peace and relational harmony, and I'm on it, and I'm reaping a lot of the benefits of it yeah yeah that's great yeah i think a lot of well i know that a lot of um people who who choose to go to seminary end up deconstructing Mm -hmm. because they're forced to examine so many things you know more up close and in more detail yeah yeah and i i mean in some of the bible courses that i took over my four years at bethel i do think that was a helpful part of my deconstruction was just Mm -hmm. like reading the bible and reading like academic texts on contexts and you know context yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> um, which was not emphasized in yeah. the brethren one piece too that was always mis- not always it became very mysterious to me once I was in college was just reflecting on the there was no emphasis on like theological education for church leadership in the brethren and that's probably partially because there wasn't like a pastor it was a board of elders who were typically just like nice dads right Uh like the nice dads of the church were just like the elders Uh and um like i don't know if very many folks had like any formal you know academic study of Mm. the bible of theology of you know so i i also think that was fascinating once i went to college and was taking courses on you know um, I took one that was really powerful. It was about reconciliation. It was the theology of reconciliation. And that opened my eyes a lot to kind of like differences between like forgiveness and reconciling. And mm. like two very different things. Mm-hmm. And so that was a helpful part of my deconstruction. But I know when I would go to my parents in college, this was also kind of a a heavy part of my deconstruction was realizing like, okay, this is, I'm going to be disappointing them. Yeah. From here forward. Right. Because um, I can't unsee or unthink the things that I've now entertained as sure. likely truth. Mm-hmm. But I would bring things up, and I, I recall my parents being like, well, you know, don't take our word for it. Keep, you know, going to the word. And it's like, guys, I just wrote a 24 page paper on these four verses. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure I'm not going to do any more work right. than that. Yeah. And this is the conclusion I've come to. Uh-huh, sure. And it just was this very unsettling feeling of, like, unless what I believe totally melds into, like, your belief system, then I'm just not enlightened yet. As right. opposed to, like, uh-huh. 
you didn't read any of the books that I refer to in this right. paper. And yeah. Not that I did either, but, <laughs> you know, like, just... You didn't read the Cliff's Notes that I read. <laughs> yeah. I can skim and know which parts I'm going to refer to uh-huh. in the paper. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So I think there's that element that... I often refer to actually as the trauma of consciousness. I have this theory that, you know, we know that the brain can dissociate, that the body also can dissociate when we're, you know, experiencing something extremely traumatic. Often this happens like in assault, sexual or physical sure. violence. And people will dissociate in which either they like feel like they're watching their bodies from above, mm. but they don't feel present in their bodies, mm. or literally the brain can just remove that memory from your recollection. Right. Sure indefinitely yeah and um for me as i've entertained association and what that looks like feels like sounds like i also like there's that can happen too when you receive information that is so violent or so contradictory to the foundation of either your identity or your sense of safety that i think your brain can dissociate by like fake newsing stuff that's either inconvenient mm. or yeah can just like automatically say well that's not conducive with my belief system right. thus that's not of god that's mm. sinful yeah. that's wrong right. that's heresy uh-huh. whatever you want to call it yeah you have the preconceived conclusion that filters the information that you're that you're yes. getting yeah yeah does that make sense mhm totally and so i think that for me, a lot of my deconstruction has meant just like uh, kind of just trying to have space and patience for people that they're likely like not ready to engage the trauma of consciousness. Mm. And the doesn't trauma make, of consciousness. Yeah. Good. Well, and then there's also the other element of that of like once you do entertain some like shitty realities that are real, mm. then you also have to deal with sometimes the lack of sense of safety right like now i believe that the police are systematically targeting black men and murdering them i no longer do have a sense of safety or trust for this system mm-hmm. and like that is really scary for a lot of folks who have always just been like okay if anything happens we call the police they're going to take care of us yeah you know and um but I think there are folks who hear that and they're like, I can't live in a society where I can't call the police or where I can't know that someone's going to come and save me. Mm. But that is the reality for so many people. Mm. The police are not going to come and save you. The police may come and murder you um, when you ask for help. But So I think that's just an example of where I see that a lot when I'm having conversations. I'm like, you aren't even, you are seeking to misunderstand me. Which I mm. used to take very personally, mm-hmm. and now I also have, like, a little bit of a grain of sympathy of, like, okay, this really challenges your identity or your sense of safety, and you don't have the coping skills to absorb this mm. reality mm-hmm. or observe this reality. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, since 2016 is... I think becoming more and more highlighted. Yeah. And since 2016, I've had so many other folks from the Brethren reach out to me and say, Kayla, did you see this coming? Like, yeah. you were already naming some of this stuff before 2016. Um, and of course, just like most white millennials, no, I did not see it coming. And it was shocking. But I think that that was kind of a last straw for a lot of folks mm-hmm. in my position coming from fundamentalist communities because it was really just like a very blatant highlighting of like this is not about values Mm -hmm. this is about patriarchy white supremacy capitalism you know Mm -hmm. what do you have to gain and what what is at what of your power is being threatened right now Mm. by by whatever political issues you're perseverating on you know sure um are there other members of your brethren community who are in similar places as you or who have also uh, deconstructed? Definitely. Um, I There's definitely a few. Mm-hmm. And I've been very lucky to have folks from you know all over the country who were connected to me either through Bible camp or mm-hmm. through Bible conferences or... Um, or just like my youth groups who have reached out and been like, whoa, thank you so much for like speaking to this. 
And I will say, I think I'm one of the main people who's been pretty vocal about it. Yeah. And I also acknowledge I'm in a privileged scenario where I actually do have pretty awesome parents. And yes, I've had to put in a shit ton of work. Mm. Um, I've had the energy to do that. Mm. I also think that I do get to work kind of as a free agent and that I'm not in a part, I'm not in a marriage, right? I'm not married. I'm not a parent. I don't have children. I don't have to deal with a lot of those family dynamics that come with like more, adding more and more roles and titles Mm. to those relational dynamics. Mm. I think that, um, a lot of folks who are married have to also deal with like, well, if we come out to my parents, we got to come out to your parents, gotta, yeah. you know. And by come out, I right. I actually do want to hold that sacred for yeah, the LGBTQ yeah. community, but I do think it's a similar process of like sharing something that you know this they do not want to mm-hmm. hear this, mm-hmm. and this is going to change how they perceive right. me as a person, mm-hmm. how they perceive my value, respect my intellect, you know, and how. And if they will continue to give affection, yeah. Um, so it is a, a scary process, I think, to share that with people. I have just been in a position that, like, it was in my early twenties that I did a lot of the deconstruction work when I was still it was in grad school. I still was, you know, not married. I was able to, you know, find community every step of the way where I was at. Yeah. And I was also in a lot of like social circles that it was easy to do that you mm. know like I was going to parties and I was in grad school and I was you know able to join different you know rituals like meditation nights and mm. stuff that mm-hmm. would expose me to other people who were on a similar trajectory mm-hmm. have you experiment- experimented with any other religions specifically I'll be honest, I don't think I've had, like, the energy or the, more importantly, the motivation Mm -hmm. to do a lot of, like, research. I definitely would say I've surrounded myself with a number of folks who identify more with, like, Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And that feels really, really nice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I feel like I usually can get behind a lot of the, yeah, the beliefs and values Mm -hmm. within Buddhism. I actually think a lot of them overlap with the beliefs and the values I actually was taught by Christianity, believe it or not. Uh Um, And, but, and honestly, even like atheism and agnosticism, I haven't even done that much like flirting Hmm. with those Hmm. or like doing a, a lot of research into like, how do I perceive this? I think I just literally don't care that much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like uh-huh. I I've been able to make some sense of this world and my purpose and I feel a great deal of fulfillment and if I can access all of those, you know, sensations and elements of stability, uh-huh. like I just don't feel that motivated to yeah. take on a new identity mm-hmm. and and I also have been able to create a lot of rituals for myself, sure. right? Rituals and traditions, which mm. are part of my spiritual, you know, practice. Mm-hmm. And I've been able to also have a decent community, a lot mm. of diver- diversity of thought within the community. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I think that feels safest to me now mm-hmm. is like being in communities, even if we're doing some type of spiritual practice or tradition mm-hmm. or intentional conversation. I feel safer when I know, like, it's okay to not agree with everyone in this room. Yeah, Like, that's totally. normal. That's the plan. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I also have a great deal of, like, empathy and a little bit of anxiety, even, when I think about folks who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, who maybe are experiencing deconstruction, or yeah. people who are, you know, already in church leadership. And I've mm-hmm. talked to a few folks in church leadership right. who have really had to wrestle with deconstruction and totally. like how much of this do I owe yeah. being transparent about it yep. what of it is you know mm-hmm. what do it, I get to have discretion with what I keep to myself and sacred for me my mm-hmm. therapist my partner my family yeah um, but I think that like for example a number of folks even in my family right who are in their 40s 50s 60s who um, 
I, I just think about like, wow, deconstruction would be like socially pretty dangerous for them. Yeah, sure. You know, yeah. Maybe, and maybe financially even like with leaders, yes. church leaders and stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. If your employment is dependent on it, yeah. even if you're not um, church leader, even if you're working for a faith-based organization, yeah, clinic, sure. I've mm. spoken with therapists actually who mm. work in faith-based clinics and really wrestling with, is yeah. this okay? Wow. Um, and, um, sucks. yeah, when you're experiencing deconstruction for sure. So employment, obviously like partnership. I definitely was raised with this belief that like when you marry mm. the one, mm-hmm. um, they're going like and your relationship is grounded in Christ you know mm-hmm. that's the foundation of mm-hmm. your partnership that's not going to change mm-hmm. and if it does it's like a betrayal to the marriage mm-hmm. and so I've had a few up close and personal um, you know exposure to people in my life who one partner mm-hmm. will has like deconstructed or started yeah. deconstructing or is you know struggling with like really wanting to deconstruct but feeling mm. maybe a little trapped of like if I tell this person I'm not a Christian or if I explore the reality that I might not believe mm. this yeah. is this person going to still want to be married to me mm. or will this person be like angry at me will they think that I'm rejecting them just mm. because I no longer identify with this element of their identity mm. um, and I do think about that like um in a lot of the marriages that were modeled for me, yeah, I think mm. they would feel literally betrayed if one party deconstructed and the other didn't. Yeah, you know? totally. Um, so I do feel a good deal of like anxiety and empathy for people who are not in the same position that I've been in to experience deconstruction in my early mid yeah, right. 20s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, in a season where I didn't have to have a lot of like commitments to other people to mm-hmm. be who I was when I was 19 years old mm-hmm. you know yeah have you seen any older members of either your specific church community or other church communities have to go through that I'm honestly mm-hmm. I, I feel like because mm-hmm. I've wondered if um, I it seems to me like a lot of our generation is deconstructing or, de- or deconverting um, mm-hmm. I wonder if, if that's just um like the bias of, of my perception being like, well, like, like everyone goes through that at a certain, you know, phase mm-hmm. in life. But it's, but I, it, it seems like the older generation doesn't really mm-hmm. go through that as often. I'm not sure if that's yeah. true or not, though. You know, it's been pretty encouraging. We've had a few folks who are above the age of, you know, 40 who have come to a support group, uh, some of our meetups. I actually have had professors reach out to me to kind of talk oh. through deconstruction. Um, cool. So I actually do think I've I've met a, not a ton. I mm. still would say the vast majority of the folks that I've met through the collective, and folks who've reached out to me from like the brethren and evangelical circles I've run in, are probably under the age of forty, sure. under the age of thirty five, even probably. Mm. Um, which also makes sense. Like I'm twenty nine. A lot right, of my yeah. social networks mm. are within that like right. ten year gap uh-huh. there. Um, but I do think that's probably for a lot of those dynamics I just mentioned of like it is probably socially perhaps financially mm. so much riskier for someone to deconstruct when so much of their basic needs or their life routine yeah. is rooted in this system mm. and also I think there's some element of like when you deconstruct, you have to reassess, like, what good was all of this life energy towards? Mm. Like, did I waste, squander my time, mm. my energy, my love, my relationships? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And also, was I a bigot? Because that I've had to reassess, right? Yeah. Like, sure. I was on submission ships. I wish I was not on. Sure. You yeah. know? Of course. I was... I did some street evangelism that I truly like regret and am so embarrassed about. I confronted a queer peer in high school because she said that the Bible didn't talk about homosexuality. So I went home and printed off all the verses and like handed them to her. I wish I didn't do that. I'm so embarrassed. And I'm more importantly like i'm so sorry like for some yeah. of that behavior no, of and that's been part of me engaging the trauma of consciousness is okay now i gotta take some responsibility because yeah, i did cause harm yeah. 
It wasn't my intention. My identity is not rooted in who I was indoctrinated to be. Mm. (laughs) But Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I did cause harm. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, and that was with 19 years of Mm -hmm. that. I can't imagine with 50, 60 years, especially Mm -hmm. if that's been your employment, especially, you know, I can't say I saved that many souls. (laughs) (laughs) How many jewels are on your (laughs) Yeah. Oh, gosh, I haven't heard that one in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We had a funny, this is a little tangent, and then I'll I'll probably ask you one more thing because I think we're getting pretty close to time. But um, we had this funny uh, discussion yesterday at at Revolution. Uh, We were talking about the whole the culture of um, you know or how how harmful it can be to your psyche to believe in or to to rely on the particular flavor of a belief in the afterlife um, that Christianity mm-hmm. the Western Christianity kind of propagates and how it's just funny like there's this whole thing of like trying to convert people and being like bro like I'd love to see you up there at the at the pearly gates we can be roommates in heaven <laughs> mm-hmm. you know eat some pizza rolls get a, an apartment together man like me I just want to see you up there man it's just like it's just this very strange thing like when we die we're gonna be chilling in heaven forever and ever we're gonna be we're gonna be best buds it's just a strange mm-hmm. a strange thing um if you wanna I'll ask you maybe um oh I wanna say this too before I forget is I'd like you to remember to, to plug whatever you want to at the end but yeah. then before that um what trajectory do you do you hope to see the the collective going towards mm. that's also been a hilarious uh Evolution with my therapist. Every session I have with her, I'm like, new plan, new life, <laughs> life plan. I honestly am entertaining opening a practice, of mm-hmm. course, um, in 2020, where I would be able to, you know, do psychotherapy, yeah, treating religious trauma. Mm-hmm. I um, also could see me focusing more on just like retreats and education mm. for clinicians mm-hmm. and being more of like a community holder and I guess leader um, again both of those words though have a little bit of like anxiety behind them mm. um, and I also could see the collective being really just like a psychoeducational kind of organization where we could definitely refer people on to ther- to psychotherapy, mm. to body work, to coaching, relationship coaching, empowerment coaching, um, mm-hmm. sex education, drug education, mm-hmm. all different kinds of things that like people have to have access to information about to make safe choices, but sure, probably yeah. didn't get a comprehensive sex education, and really no one in America probably had a comprehensive drug education. So let's yeah. change that. Um, but I... I would like this to just be a space for sure where there's support groups, for sure where we have retreats, for sure where we're doing clinical, you know, education mm-hmm. and um, training. But I also could see this like being a practice that I would do. And one uh, limitation I would say around therapy is that I can only do, I can only practice therapy with folks who live in the state where I am licensed. And so I know Dr. Marlene Wynell does, like, coaching over the phone. Mm. And the difference between coaching and psychotherapy is coaching is really going through more of either a curriculum or just it's psychoeducation. So in those scenarios, the practitioner, I'll say, Mm -hmm. is doing more of the talking. Mm. Whereas in psychotherapy, Mm. it's more about processing Mm -hmm. and, you know, Mm -hmm. sitting with and exploring, Mm -hmm. you know, beliefs, emotions, all that beautiful jazz Mm -hmm. um which i love and i want to get into psychotherapy but i also can see how right now where there are so few clinicians i've had people from other states being like there's no one in my town who practices who doesn't go to my church i'm not going to go to someone in my church for this or that's a big one you know um that's complicated. And certainly geographically, yeah, I think there's many places where, like, yeah, you're probably not going to find a secular therapist or a therapist who has any concept of religious trauma mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and is going to make a lot of assumptions about that. Right, yeah, sure. Cool. I'm going to go ahead and do some plugs and wrap her up. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll just plug the collective. Honestly, um, you can check us out on Instagram, Facebook. We are in the process of creating our website. Um, 
ultimately we'd love to have a nationwide list so that folks can kind of go and go state by state and see what clinicians, practitioners, um, educators around religious trauma mm-hmm. are practicing in their state. That'd be super cool. Um, yeah. Like a directory. Yeah. yeah. That's our that's our hope that, you know, hopefully fall, winter of this next year, 20, 2019, 2020, we'll have that in the works. And... Um, but certainly if you live here in the Twin Cities, check out a support group, come to one of our monthly meetups. Um, we also do have retreats here in the cities, and we would like to take this show on the road. So if you are someone who lives in a different state, um, we are open to coming to you to facilitate a re- retreat if you are open to supporting us with a lot of those um, those moving pieces around finding space Mm -hmm. that we can hold Mm -hmm. um and also for sure if anyone has a therapist or a clinician that they have found really conducive to their deconstruction Mm -hmm. and reclamation process hit us up you know slide into our dms let us know who we can refer people on to um and yeah excellent and we're always looking for places that are, you know, neutral spaces. We're not looking to hold space in church basements or anything, sure. but to hold neutral spaces for our workshops, for our support group, for our training. So if you're also, you know, a business owner or have a connection to a community space, yeah. we would love to hear, um, for sure, here in the Twin Cities, if, if we can tap into that. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Thanks. Well, anything else? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Spirit hasn't put anything else on your heart right now? No. Okay. Spirit has not moved. Okay. Well, thanks, Kayla. (laughs) Thank you. That was a post-Christian podcast.